We're talking at this time about the facade in this journey of being under construction. We're talking about the facade of both our lives, which are under construction in the spirit, and this working model behind me here. The facade in this series is what Peter in his second letter calls godliness. A facade sets the tone of what people are going to encounter on a building on the street as well as in us. Whether it likes this arrangement or not, the facade makes promises that will be required to be kept. The architect of a building knows this to be true, so they do all they can to create something that is both attractive at the front door and equally attractive once you set foot inside. And our approach to godliness is much the same. We learned last week in 2 Timothy that there is both form and power to this trait in a believer's life. Uh, What we might better call today style and substance. Or perhaps promise and practice, preaching and practice. And we had a bit of an idea of fleshing out the basic definition of what Peter was on about when he said the word godliness, or what is translated for us godliness, and how it fitted with the world around them at this time. Godliness came from a Greek word that had been commonly used around all the pagan religious circles of the time. It was a thousand-year-old word in the vocabulary of the, of the ancient Greeks. Both the society of the time as well as the religious systems themselves understood something about religion, that it needed to be more than just ticking a census box. There needed to be something tangible about that thing. There needed to be some sort of action. There needed to be some sort of, not just claiming affiliation, saying, this is what I am, but having behavior that actually backed that up. And in the Greek, it was Eusebia. It, was, it actually basically just means a, a sense of being devout to the religion that you claim. And Peter rightly calls Christians to get in on that action too. If they wanted religious credibility with the world around them back then, well, they really weren't in a place to demand freedom of speech. But they simply showed in their actions that there was some depth and there was reality to the claim that they made. Last week we were shown that our godliness is essentially two expressions held in tension. There is an upward devotion, to be devout upwards. And there is a sideward form of being devout also. They're held alongside together and both are intertwined. It can be argued that... Godliness actually doesn't occur unless both are in play. If we're all pray, 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 hiding away, doing religious things, and having no action attached, that's not godliness. If we serve, 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 and have no connection with our Creator, and if we're just doing, 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 without actually knowing God in the process, that's not godliness. It was a scary thing a number of years ago. One of my early mentors actually told me that any pastor can build a church without Jesus. Why? Because we can have form and no power. Because there is 
there is style and no substance because there is, there is, there is surf, 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 do, 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 and no, 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 or connecting to Jesus in the process. It's possible to do, but it's not a godly way to go. That's not godliness. Christian godliness is expressed both vertically and horizontally. My quick summary last week, among other things, is this, that godliness is our deep devotion to God that is also on display in action. And it's the conviction that our relationship with God, our relationship with other believers, and our influence in the world are deeply and inescapably intertwined. Now, we know that the Jews had a handle on this, handle on this also in the first century. All right, they also understood, probably at that time better than the other religions, that devotion to God was both a vertical and horizontal experience. And we see a number of passages in the New Testament where Jesus interacts with this thinking. Today we're going to look into a well-known one. We're going back to the Sermon on the Mount today. And we're going to be staying mainly in Matthew chapter 6 today, so I'll give you time to open up on the Bibles there. It will be on screen in three languages shortly. And, um, but also, I will first look at Matthew 5 verse 20, because I think that will actually help us feed the idea also. So let's quickly just look, Matthew 5 20, and um, we'll get this one up first. I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. All right, I'm just going to leave it on screen for a bit there. My three languages actually work this time. There was a lot of wrestling with a computer to make that work. At this point in the Sermon on the Mount, we're only 20 verses in, and Jesus has covered a heap of pretty deep ground by this stage. All right, we've had the Beatitudes, a very practical life of holiness there. He's spoken of kingdom influence through the analogies of salt and light. He's interacted briefly with the Mosaic law. And then he speaks this verse out. Speaking of a righteousness that somehow outshines that of a Pharisee. In this setting, he's speaking into this journey of godliness as we're understanding it by exploring what makes us up on the inside of us. Then with the Beatitudes underpinning things, we're shown further that murder and hatred are deeply intertwined. So it's not just looking in the mirror as a Pharisee going, hey, I didn't kill no one, no, today. It's did I hate in my heart today? It's coming home confident and going, gee, I, I didn't commit adultery today. But did I look lustfully in that direction? Or did I look at that thing I was not supposed to look at? Because they're intertwined. It's not, did I make wonderful big vows in front of everybody? But instead, no, am I really a man of my word? Did I make the ultimate vow, the marriage vows, intended to be kept? That's brought up in there. not just did I turn my cheek when I was persecuted, because that's in there. Jesus said that, turn the other cheek. But can I actually look in the mirror and say, I love my enemy and I'm praying for them. 
Look at that. We've got an outward thing happening, but it's driven by an inward part of us first. It becomes really clear in this whole chapter that godliness is not merely something for show, but it has a deep root system in the heart before anything sprouts. I'm beginning to love afresh the richness of the teaching of godliness in the Scriptures. It's a broad term that can be described in so many ways. And the word righteousness will kind of be a, 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 another related word I'm going to use today to, to talk about it. It's an inward expression well before it's an external one. This adds further depth to what we've covered already. It's upward and it's outward. It's upward and it's sideward. It's inward and it's outward. And there's a middle ground pulling this all together, the inner man and the things it gives attention to. The inner man is where the motives and the secret things are all laid before God. And our outward flow of show is filtered through what God reveals in that space first. God does a work internally. We look up, he deals within we look out and we spread ourselves outwards. If our inner workings are right before God, our outward expression comes out right. And to surpass the righteousness of the Pharisees simply means to live a life that gets past that legalistic way of life and does it the way Jesus intends. Let's turn the page over to chapter 6 and we're just going to look at verse 1 at this point. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. Hmm. The first instance in 520... Going beyond the Pharisees is actually a word that speaks more about moral rightness. In fact, we might just nail, get that one nailed down, shall we? Moral rightness first. It's the inner workings of us doing business with God and being set right before we act. It's about being made right with God. It's that justified place before God. In 520, it's the upward element of devotion. Not just sending words up to the ceiling, but actually allowing the presence of God to transform us, to redeem us, to do work in us. But this second occurrence in chapter 6 is actually the horizontal form of it. When we are deeply connected upwardly, we're going to be moved like God is. And being moved like Him is to be moved with godly compassion. It's from this place that the outward has power and adds value to those around us. 
So we have righteousness that deals with the upward transformative side of things, and then we have one that brings out compassion in us in the outward. today. Here's how Jesus talks about some of that outward devotion. We're just going to read on into uh, chapter 6, verse 2 at this time. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets, to be honoured by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what the right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Verse 5, when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father, who sees what he's done in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Let's go to verse 16. When you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others they are fasting. And truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that it will not be obvious to others that you are fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Did you see the three outward expressions Jesus mentioned there? Giving to those in need, prayer, and fasting. No one likes that one. Fasting. And all three are preceded with the phrase, when you. Upward devotion corrects our motives and it produces an outward expression of compassion. And that compassion draws us upward once again. Let's look at these three things. Giving to the needy. Now this sometimes draws a less than compassionate response from us, doesn't it? I know it does with me. I'll be honest. But I'll also say I'm not alone, right? I can be that guy sometimes with charities. I'll put heaps of strict parameters on the ones that ask for my support. Is all this money going directly to those in need? Are there checks and balances to make sure it's not a rort? You know, you know, there's all sorts of stuff that we do with, you know, there's a cynical edge I have about certain charities and what they do for, for, for those in need and stuff. Sometimes I can be in too much of a hurry to walk by the homeless street, the homeless guy in Adelaide, Sydney, Melbourne. 
In Melbourne and Sydney, you can actually get quite cynical doing that because just about every homeless person on a corner outside a supermarket around the CBD has a piece of cardboard with a beautifully written note saying exactly what their story is. And they're all different. And they're all, you can almost think, gee, they're so uber creative. They're telling a story there. And, and instead of actually reading a story and taking interest in the person behind it, you can get really cynical and go, oh, yeah, heard it all before. And yet, it's beginning to emerge on Commercial Street here too. I've actually seen people with hats out asking for help in Commercial Street, Mount Gambia, in recent weeks. A homeless guy was arrested on the street. I walked my dog down Commercial Street outside the Times building. There's bloodstains on the, car, on the footpath from, from an arrest. There was a disturbance of, of leaf matter where a, guy, a homeless guy's got all his gear tucked under a big pile of leaves in a car park. It's on our doorstep a bit more. And that's something that needs to hit us where we live. Jesus assumes here, and I say rightly, even though I don't always get it right, that time with God will lead to compassion toward them. A few weeks ago when I was in Adelaide, I told you about that monk I saw feeding the homeless. Kind of triggered something in me. I was in a much more engaged time with the Lord at that particular moment. Pondering all this as part of that process and done a bit of study, so I was kind of, you know, really in my scriptures a fair bit at that time, understanding God a little better. Seeing this Buddhist guy do what he did on the street kind of triggered me as well, because I'm going, man, where are the Christians doing that? I worked further up, went further up looking for my food, and I went around the corner, and there was a homeless guy. And I learned this in India in March. To give somebody eye contact is so valuable. I've been ignorant of that fact for such a long time. And so to give this guy what I had in my pocket, to actually shake his hand, to eyeball him, to look him in the eye, to actually give value to that person was a totally amazing moment. I've had these flashes of brilliance before. These things have happened in my life before as well. But it's a totally different experience to the disdain that can often happen when we walk down the street. There's something missing in us if our pursuit of godliness doesn't yield a compassionate streak in us. I've done my devotions, I've ticked my pious boxes. And I've walked in disregard for what's going on around me at, at some times. And I know I'm not alone in this room. I've also been enriched by simple times of the Lord and then finding myself in step with him on the street as a result. And found sacred ground in the presence of someone in need. And again, I know I'm not alone in that regard. And I know which one which expression of that I prefer.
Godliness here, while clearly an outward act, is also a discreet one. I've already said too much, going by what Jesus said. Hide the act of our left hand from our right. This is generosity with an air of willful forgetfulness. It's a quiet one for the benefit of the immediate recipient alone. Done before the audience of one. Jesus says to avoid the trumpets and the fanfare in order to not be like a Pharisee or a hypocrite as we give. Now, one of those examples can be talked about with the widow's two mites. We've read that passage. It's in Mark. It's in Luke. The two copper coins story. If you're a veteran of the megachurch scene and sat amongst a few offering talks, you'll have heard it. The story is taking place in the court of the women of the temple. And the temple treasury is a series of boxes with metal funnels going into those things. Akin to the sound of a trumpet. And Jesus was watching people give to the temple treasury. The temple treasury was actually given for the poor. And rich people would come in with loud song and dance and prayerful prayer, you know, makes lots of procession and lots of fanfare. And they would come in their bags of coin and they would pour it in. So you'd hear the clatter of coins against metal, metal on metal. And everyone goes, ooh and ah. Jesus is just looking at him going, that ooh and that ah is all the reward you're getting, son. Then the widow's two mites, right? Sounds like, you know, the $2 coins that make no noise and you never know you've dropped them. Two of those just dropped in. And Jesus goes, stop and look. You've got one lady... giving to something of which she was rightfully a recipient, not a donor. I don't know which one I would rather be in my giving. The widow, not the hypocrite. Jesus says, when we pray, Jesus, again, rightly assumes that believers will crave time with the Lord. Again, this is not to tick a box. To say, I've done my 30 minutes today like an exercise plan. But this is simply enjoying the privilege of knowing him. Again, this is a quiet and humble thing. Prayer where everyone looks on and applauds your eloquence is a waste of time. Filling it with holy sounding words you have no idea of the meaning of. That's not productive stuff. Now, public prayer has its place. Rod just led, led a pastoral prayer for our city and we gathered in agreement for that. And that is 100% appropriate. These are the things we need to be doing. And the Bible tells us those are the things we need to be doing. Prayers and intercessions for all the world around us, right? But when I was a teenager and I was in my first church, which was a very legalistic church, a church that was very much marked by doing the things. Learning how to pray was a very interesting environment. Before church, there was a prayer room open. 
and it was suggested, yay, expected, that the community would come and would take up a chair and we would loudly just pray in this room an hour before the church service started. And if you wanted to learn to pray, no one sat down and taught you. You had to kind of sit down, sidle up alongside the louder prayers in there who were actually praying loud so the pastor heard them sound how faithful they were. And you try to learn the phrases that they were saying and they're thinking of all these uber-creative things to try to describe God. And I'm the 13-year-old going, what's the Rose of Sharon? What's the Lily of the Valley? What is Song of Solomon doing in a prayer time? What on earth? Lots of big words, lots of crazy expressive things. And yet, much of my teenage devotion time like that, that upward journey, despite the eloquent words, felt like nothing was getting past the ceiling. It was a hollow experience. Jesus instead, and this is for somebody today, calls us to simplicity and quiet discretion. Simply sit down and keep it simple. Some here are intimidated by the concept of prayer. Feeling like they're not doing it right feeling like they're not doing it long enough, feeling like they're not doing it hard enough, whatever that looks like, or just something feels like it's not enough. And it's more about a time spent question than it is about the quality of what's actually being occurring. There's no prescribed time here. Sometimes we take longer, sometimes we take shorter in prayer. But this is what Jesus is saying to us. Get in a place where it's quiet. Get in a place where it's just you and him. Get in a place where you can be real with him. And get in a place where it is simplicity, where you understand what you're saying. To the God who knows you in and out. And in that place, say what you've got to say and listen for as much as you need to. And leave when you have a sense that something is different in you. Transformation is a lifetime journey. But if you come before the presence of God and if your outlook changes slightly or a bit, then God's done something there. Walk with that. If a compassionate streak starts to birth in you and get a little bit stronger, then God's done something. Walk in that. If your understanding of God in one way or another has just improved a little bit, then God's done something. Feel free to leave. If you've heard even a few syllables of words that he said to you, then God's done something. Walk in that. 
Keep it simple. Don't put so much pressure on yourself in those places and don't do it for the benefit of anybody else but you and God and for those whom you're praying for. Now, bear in mind, this is in the light of, of acts of righteousness. So something about what we've encountered in the world around us will come up as subject matter in those times when we bring it to the Father. It should do. Some of the areas of ministry that we have been in, some of the people that we've come into contact with, some of the things we've been affected by, these will be part of that discussion that we have with God in those times. And so will that time of just simply being transformed by God. But keep it simple. Don't worry about buzzwords or hollow vocabulary or agendas that we're supposed to keep. No fanfare, no getting it right because other people might be listening. Who cares? It's you and God. Don't go there with a sense of, I'm doing this because I have to, or I'm ticking a box. Every time, that won't work. Just seek real time with Jesus. Listening as much as you need to, and speaking as much as you need to and being done. It's amazing what God can do when we keep it simple. And lastly, it's assumed we'll fast. In the Bible, fasting occurs where we need a shot of personal discipline as we pursue times of renewal. In the Scriptures, fasting often came with repentance. Sometimes sitting in sackcloth and ashes. Or in the times of affirming trust in God's future provision. This was never, ever a case of hunger striking God. It was never a case of trying to twist God's arm. Instead, it's more of a soft reset on our spiritual walk. You know how you get your phone and it jams up? So you hold the, the home button and the power button together and you get the little reset, reset sort of setting in there. It's a soft reset. Or if you have to hit Control-Alt-Delete a couple of times on that back projection computer, like we do most mornings. Fasting does that in our spiritual walk. It's a, it's a realigning of things. It's a, it's a refocusing. It's a recalibrating time. But there's also a scriptural precedent for this being both upward and outward in process. Isaiah 58 says this, Is this the kind of fast I have chosen? Only a day for people to humble themselves. Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed and for lying in sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call a fast? A day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the kind of fasting I've chosen? To loose the chains of injustice, to untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and to break every yoke. Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? When you see the naked, to clothe them and not turn away from your own flesh and blood. Our devotion to God pulls out a compassionate streak and our fasting becomes both recalibrating with God but also recalibrating with the world around us. 
in the original idea, fasting involved a refraining from food. I've got to be honest, I kind of get a little bit cringy when I hear about fasting TV or social media or junk food and those things. I think they're actually outside the bounds of what fasting is about. As I interact with Isaiah, I see something deeper in the concept of a fast here. The fast of the godly is one that deprives sustenance. And it stands with and even supplies those who are by no choice also deprived. The fasting of other things in our Western setting are nice, but to be honest, they actually make a very individualistic case for our faith. When much of what the Christian faith is about is a community expression. Godliness doesn't allow for that. Those other fasts, call them what they are. They're detoxes from a crazy world. But perhaps our challenge is to consider a fast that actually deprives us of something a tad more vital. Going without social media shouldn't affect us all that much. It shouldn't affect us like we're hungry. Going without TV should not affect us like we're starving and feeling deprived. Going without junk food shouldn't make us feel that way. Going without good, solid, square meals for a time as we refocus on God, perhaps that will. Perhaps now that this homelessness thing is becoming more prominent on our doorstep, a practical fast is in order for some. If God is calling you to do that, well, going by what Jesus says, we don't want to know about it. Jesus says, when you do it, do it quietly. Wash your face, anoint your head. Put the burlap away, wear cotton. Smile. Enjoy God's presence in that time as he's realigning us. Lest our reward come in a far cheaper way than we would like. So as... I conclude my part of this section on godliness. We've got Chris next week. We've got Peter the week after. I'm looking forward to their insights and I hope I've not taken too much away from them. In all this, we see further evidence that godliness in practice is a deeply interwoven thing in our life. It's a rich tapestry. It's a lifestyle of upward, simple, quiet devotion. And it's a lifestyle of sideward, simple, quiet devotion. They both come with an expected motivation of simply living to please God and becoming increasingly compassionate towards the things that matter to him. A facade of godliness will actually be a quiet one. It'll be unimposing. 
but it will still have the best curb appeal on the street it's in. Earlier in Matthew 5, Jesus says to let your light shine brightly so that all might see your good works and glorify God. Our godliness will be quiet, but the goodness will be unmistakable. Because the likeness. Some have described godliness as God-likeness. The likeness will be unmistakable. And because of that likeness, because of that interaction, people will encounter that. They will see the facade, they will look behind the facade and see value and they will glorify God through that. Let God in us shine in us. Pursue it with all that we have. Keep it simple. Keep it continually upward. And let the upward continually drive us outward. And let godliness continue to grow in our lives as we go with that. Let's pray.